today's episode, I'm joined by John Nader, the MP for Perth, Wellington. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 49 of Conservative Roundup. Today, I'm joined by John Nader, the MP for Perth, Wellington. Well, thank you so much for being here, John. It's great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Aiden. No problem. Why don't you tell us a little, a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is John Nader. I'm the member of Parliament for Perth Wellington. I've served in this uh, as, as the MP since uh, 2015. Uh, before that, I, uh, I was a municipal councillor. I uh, grew up on my family farm in uh, rural southern Ontario. So that's a, that's a bit of my background. Be, uh, before politics, I was a, a lecturer at King's University College teaching political science. And uh, I've been a political junkie all my life. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's exciting to be a member of Parliament and exciting to uh, serve as part of the Conservative team. Wow. Well, what kind of made you want to jump into politics? Well, I've always been interested in politics. It's uh, it's been uh, since I was about nine years old. Uh, I was watching the 1993 election on TV back in uh, 1993, and I uh, was excited by it and got me interested in it. And I've been uh, hooked ever since. Uh, when I was in high school, I volunteered on my first uh, political campaign. I volunteered for uh, for a local candidate who who eventually won, which was wonderful. And then uh, volunteered in his office and and just. Uh, uh, stayed involved and always had that uh, desire to serve desire to help out and i think through politics it's one of the easiest ways and the best ways uh to really change change the world and change your community for the better oh definitely what are you going into politics who would you say is your your biggest political inspirations well, actually, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest. My biggest political inspiration was my uh, my predecessor, um, Gary Schellenberger. So um, he, he never served in cabinet. He he never uh, served as a parliamentary secretary. He was what most people would consider a backbencher. But you know what? Uh, he worked hard. He worked hard, and he really cared about his community. I think that was one of the greatest inspirations for me as a parliamentarian. That. Even as a as a as an individual member of parliament, as as a backbencher, you can still have that impact for the betterment of your community to help mm-hmm. out um, your constituents, to help out uh, people in your community, to help them uh, live a better life. So you know, seeing the way he worked for uh, nearly 13 years as an MP, um, serving in, in that capacity was really a great inspiration for me, and one of the reasons why I, I was so honored uh, to serve as his predecessor or as his successor um, <laughs> to his predecessor. So it was it was, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, going in uh, in politics now, what type of conservative would you describe yourself as, and, and why? Yeah, you know that's that's a great question. You know, you, we have all these uh, different labels. We consider ourselves social conservatives, progressive conservatives, red Tories. Um, you know, I, I had a professor one time. He called himself a, a paleo conservative. <laughs> um, uh, you know more of a traditionalist i think it's, i think of myself as a bit of a pragmatic conservative um i don't really fit into one of those perfect little boxes um you know i i kind of go a little bit here a little bit with there um with the kind of the underlying um viewpoint an underlying idea that what am i doing to make the community better what am i doing to better our country and that's kind of where i come from so i would lean a little bit to the uh, you know social conservative on some issues you know fiscal conservative on a lot of issues mm-hmm. uh, and then there's a few odd issues that you'd probably consider myself a red tory as well so i'm kind of a little over or all over the map <laughs> on, on different issues but uh, I, I i think the term pragmatic conservative is probably the uh, the best one um george uh, george w bush had uh, had a saying about compassionate conservatism mm-hmm. and i think that's really where um, we as a party have been in the last uh, last uh, little while trying to move to that uh, uh, compassionate understanding that uh, we are conservative we believe in fiscal um, conservatism fiscal principles we also have compassion and, and care about uh, our, our fellow canadians our fellow human beings definitely uh go and you're the, the shadow minister for rural economic development can you tell us a little, a little bit about that role 
Yeah, so, I mean, when, when you're thinking about rural economic development, the, the one big issue is rural broadband. Um, about 60% of rural households still don't have access to high-speed internet, which is, you know, 50-10. Um, it, it's just, when you look at what's happened during the pandemic, anyone who doesn't have ex- access to rural high-speed, um, they just can't function in the modern mm-hmm. society. Uh, when kids are doing school online, when parents are working from home, when when uh, everything is being moved online, if you can't access high-speed internet, you don't have a rural economy uh, mm-hmm. to deal with. So um, that's really the biggest issue we see uh, in, ter- in terms of rural communities. So we see some great um, advantages that you know, some, some local business, some organizations are, are doing what they can uh, to, to bring high-speed internet, but the government really has to move faster. Um, what we've seen is a lot of money announced and promised but not flowing out the door. Mm. Uh, right now, we have what's called the rapid stream of the Universal Broadband Fund, but less than a quarter of the total funding has been allocated. And here we are, almost the end of May. And these projects have to be completed by the end of November. Wow. So we're getting really tight to actually get those projects done. And what we're seeing now as well, is we see people like Elon Musk and his Starlink program, mm. which is really Basically, uh, jumping in and, and uh, taking uh, taking up, pulling up the slack, and, and uh, really changing and uh, fundamentally changing uh, what we may think of about uh, internet. So, I think in the the years to come, you know, companies like Starlink um, here in Canada, there's Telesat, um, Amazon has a Kuiper project that may be coming down the road as well. So, I think we're really going to see a change in how we think about high speed internet, especially mm-hmm. in rural communities. Mm-hmm. But until we get to that point, we really need the government to step up, mm-hmm. uh, get fiber in the ground, get high-speed internet to these rural communities because it is the life bone, lifeblood of these rural communities. Mm-hmm. It's, it, we need to have a high-speed internet yeah, definitely. to function I'm, in this society. Definitely. I'm from, from, from Durham, so we have a bit of rural and a little bit of urban out here. So it's, I think... Recently, out here, we we've had a muni- the municipal government put in the, the fiber optic cables as well out more in the towards the rural area. So it's do do you think that there's been enough funding for rural broadband from the federal government? No, there hasn't been nearly enough. And what we've seen, in, you know, in Durham region, that's a great example. We've seen Eastern Ontario, the Eastern Ontario um, wardens, and Western Ontario wardens in my area, it's southern on southwestern Ontario. They've really stepped up and kind of taken that, uh, filled the void that the federal government has left. Um, so in Eastern Ontario, is the Eorn project. In southwestern Ontario, is the SWIFT project. And this is basically a conglomeration of uh, local municipalities, uh, counties working together to bring funding and bring partnerships to to get rural high-speed internet. And it's been a huge success. Problem is that the federal government hasn't invested in it. Mm. Um, and they've got a SWIFT 2.0 project. Uh, Eorn has a, a gig project that they're working on. The government just isn't coming to the table. So until the government comes and ponies up um, funding for that, we're unfortunately going to be uh, you know, as, as slow as dial-up trying to get to uh, <laughs> these projects, uh, projects out. So mm-hmm. um, the government has to come to the plate. Um, the province, you know, in their last budget, they've upped their total funding to about four billion, um, which is which is amazing from a provincial standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the federal government is still at uh, one point seven billion. They've announced more money in the recent budget, but uh, again, not even as much as Ontario themselves um, in, in a single wow. province. And here we have the entire country 
um, and the government's just not uh, just not stepping up to the plate. Uh, I think it's uh, there's pretty much evidence enough that the, the government, the federal government, does fall behind on a very on a very lot of things, and, as well as back with the uh, with backing of the NDP. But kind of jumping into that, we'll jump into that. I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit. But looking back at the the last elections, going through the 2015 and the 2019, where do you think like we've kind of gone wrong with the seat wise? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, 2015, you know, obviously it was a change election. Justin Trudeau came in, you know, um, you know, the, the almost the messiah in some in some ways people saw him, you know, and, and, and really that was what generated his win. He was new. He was fresh. And, and people liked him. People, you know, people wanted to change. And, and so 2015, you know, there there it was. When we moved to 2019, it was an interesting dynamic because if we look at some ridings, we actually increased our, our, our votes significantly. So in, in my riding, Perth-Wellington, I went from a 2,700-vote margin to a 10,000-vote margin, mm-hmm. which was great. Um, but right next door in Kitchener-Conestoga, we lost that seat. Mm-hmm. Harold Albrecht had been there for, uh, for over a decade, almost a decade and a half, and we lost that seat. Mm-hmm. So it's great when we were able to win big margins in, in ridings like mine and in some other seats, but if we're not picking up those... Uh, marginal seats, the the smaller cities, the um, GTA, the uh, the the you know the those types of seats. Mm-hmm. We're not going to form government, and that's mm-hmm. the challenge we we have to face right now. I think our message resonated with a lot of people, but it didn't resonate with that GTA um, uh, suburban mm-hmm. um, community. Um, to put it, to, you know, to put your finger on exactly one issue that you know we may or may not have missed, it's it's tough to do that. Yeah. But I think the one one area I would say was was climate. Uh, the climate change and, and the environment. We had some great ideas in our climate change plan last time, but they didn't resonate and we didn't talk about them enough. Mm-hmm. This time around, I hope we see something different. So we do have a climate change plan, and it's been it's been uh, you know modeled. It's been uh, um, reviewed by a third party, and it can show data that uh, you know that we have a credible plan. So I think mm-hmm. that's one of the issues that we saw happen last time. Um, that we didn't have this time. So I think going forward, um, that's hopefully where we're going to see some uh, some some progress, um, as well as just that hard work that goes into an ele- mm-hmm. winning an election, um, getting out to the communities virtually right now, uh, but uh, <laughs> showing that we're there, we're there to listen, and we're there to fight on their behalf. Definitely, I think I think there, that there's definitely room to improve. We still have the Maritimes to go through the last Edmonton seat, the rest of Winnipeg. We still have BC and definitely the GTA. The G- when when you have majority of the GTA, that's basically a, a win because it. I think there's about 45 right in that little subsection, I believe. And it's so key important because that's about, uh, well, just over a third of Parliament seats is definitely in the GTA. So I think we di- there's definitely room to improve on there. And I have heard that there it was the, the climate change plan that wasn't communicated enough. That's what I've, that's what the kind of the general consensus is. But going into the next election, what do you think the the party's biggest priorities to to get done if they were elected? Yeah, 100% jobs in the economy. We need to get Canadians back to work. So we've seen about a million jobs disappear since the pandemic began. So that's a million people who are getting a paycheck. That's a million families who who no longer have income coming into their into their families. Mm-hmm. So that's without a doubt our number one top priority going forward is getting Canadians back to work in all sectors of the economy. So we're not going to pick and choose um, sectors that we like or you know, <laughs> ignore sectors that we don't like. We are going to focus on all sectors of the economy. So whether it's the arts and culture and tourism sector that we may see in areas like mine, or whether it's the oil and gas sector in Alberta and Saskatchewan, we're going to make sure that we have people back, up, back to work, into their jobs, 
bringing home a, a paycheck, bringing home a livelihood, and getting away um, from uh, from this you know element that we've seen with the Liberal Party of, of picking and chooser choosing winners in the economy. We're going to get away from that. We want to see the fu- the economy functioning uh, across the board, all sectors, so that Canadians have jobs, have a paycheck, and are able to do what they uh, what they can to provide for their mm. families. It's definitely because uh, when you're just looking at it, Justin Trudeau is not for to bring back sectors or, or putting money back to the table into jobs that will put forward in the economy. I mean, for example, like look at, uh, I believe it was MP Cousy's bill that would jumpstart the, the transportation sector, and all the Liberal MPs voted against it. Well, it, exactly, and, and there's a great example. You know, the aviation sector. You know, the uh, you know the airlines. They've been decimated, and there are a lot of good, high-paying jobs in the airline sector, uh, uh, both on you know pilots themselves, <laughs> but everything that goes with it. Uh, whether it's booking agents, whether it's uh, uh, ground staff at the airports, this is an important aspect of the economy. And one of the challenges we've seen right now with with the airline sector, but bro- more broadly, the tourism sector, is mm-hmm. that there is no certainty. And that's what concerns a lot of people in this industry. They don't know what's happening next. So what happened in, in the House of Commons and elsewhere where we asked these questions when we put forward motions, we asked for some clarity. What are the key benchmarks that we need to reach in order to restart the tourism economy? What percentage of Canadians need to be vaccinated before we can uh, restart the tourism economy? And we're not getting those answers. And so that's that's really disappointing because these are good jobs. They're, they're exciting jobs in a lot of ways. The tourism industry is one that's it's, it's an exciting industry. And, uh, you know, people work hard in, in that industry, but we're just not getting the uh, the answers or the certainty uh, that's demanded by that. You know, they lost the the you know, tourism industry lost the entire 2020 season more or less, mm-hmm. and now we're we're here into late May. We're looking at, at summer, and we can't give any certainty uh, to the tourism industry that they're going to have a 2021 season. Definitely, and that's concerning, and we need to provide them some certainty. It's definitely a, a major highlight from here on Terrace. Definitely is the Niagara Falls attractions as well. And businesses can't even restart because I think they're either the sixth or seventh most locked down city in Ontario to date. And, and just looking at other companies going around as well as it was the it was the Greyhound the Greyhound organization or bus route, for example, that went out of business the other day after I believe it was thirty years, between twenty and thirty. And it, it's so disappointing because you see some people just managing to getting by while others aren't. And it's so disappointing to to see that as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you mentioned Niagara Falls and the, my colleague Tony Baldinelli has been a, a great proponent for the tourism industry in, in his region there. But, uh, you know, talking with him and talking with people in that, that area, it, it's a real, um, real concern because, you know, you, you think of Canada, you think of you think of Niagara Falls a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a huge attraction, especially when we see south of the border, uh, many of our American friends um, who have been fully vaccinated, um, going back to enjoying so many of yeah. those uh, tourist attractions that uh, we wish we could here in Canada, but we're, you know, we're, we're stuck with this one-dose summer, as the Prime mm-hmm. Minister has called, and I think that's really going to affect uh, a lot of things across uh, across our economy, uh, tourism, uh, and beyond. Mm, definitely. Just coming from him, too, it's always, well, if we do this, then we're going to have a normal summer, we're going to have a normal Christmas, we're going to have a normal Easter. And well, so then he goes out and spends it with his family, traveling against orders while telling everybody else not to. It's the do as, do as I say, not as I do. 
Yeah, and I think that was a concern, you know, you know, especially look at last Christmas, the number of politicians who uh, who uh, <laughs> went against uh, orders and and traveled from all, all political parties, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, and and that really hurt uh, Canadians uh, um, from from uh, you know hurt them emotionally because mm-hmm. here they are, they're following the orders, they're following the rules, you know, they can't see their families, they can't you know spend Christmas uh, with their loved ones, mm-hmm. but yet they see politicians uh, going against. Uh, advice and, and traveling uh, to who knows where mm-hmm. I think that really hurts a lot of Canadians and and uh, really uh, the term hypocrisy is one that's often used in those situations yeah. and I think that's where when Canadians see that it does not make them happy mm-hmm. and uh, there was a lot of anger at that time and I think there's a lot of anger now as well uh, that we see um, things not opening up as quickly as, as we would want um, partially because mm-hmm. we've only got um, so much vaccine and so um, while other countries are you know giving their citizens two doses yeah. uh, we're stuck with one dose with uh, with a long window in between which isn't a good 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 look for canada unfortunately and, and you did bring up our american friends like to start off like we have like these conservative republican states fully opening up again where's texas florida south dakota for example and, and then now we're, we're moving to the most woke and socialist states in america like california like they're set to reopen on, in june midway through june i mean the uk is back to normal australia is just about back to normal as well and we're, as you said, we're the the one dose bummer. That's yeah, and, and, that's how the summer's going to go. Exactly right, Aiden. And, and you know, you you look at Australia and New Zealand. They they were very strict at the beginning to prevent coronavirus from coming in in the first place. They they shut down their borders. They took stringent measures. They did what they had to do, and so they were able to uh, to avoid a lot of the heart heartache uh, that we've seen here. And then you look at countries like the United Kingdom, like Israel, like the United States, who really put a real focus on vaccines, getting those doses out, getting people vaccinated. And now they're able to to reap the benefits. And we're still this single dose delayed by, by four months. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a relatively young MP. You know, I'm only 37. So I was only able to become eligible to book a book my vaccine this morning um so i'm I'm not uh, i'm not getting mine until june 12th so you know that's that's a concern for a lot of people that it's going to take some time uh to to get everyone vaccinated definitely i think another point as well is that they extended the the dosage between from three to four months they they're taking an extra dose out of every vial so it's making it less effective with with some people as well i mean i mean that's the reality of it i mean with just chiro he said what is it we ordered seven million and then we fell like two or three million short uh, like where does that come from? Well, you know, and and that's the thing when you're when you're talking about dosing strategies, you know, we should really be following the advice of the manufacturers, whether it's Pfizer, whether it's Moderna. You know, they're saying you know a certain number of days, whether it's twenty one to twenty seven, uh, depending on on the thing. But what we're doing is we're taking our own ideas and putting it a four month window. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's not what they're recommending, and so it's it really seems like you know I, I've heard the analogy and I've seen the meme of a of you know those old glass ketchup bottles, you know, banging the end of the <laughs> bottle to get the last bit of ketchup out. It's kind of like what we're doing with the vaccines. You know, we're trying to get every every last dose out of out mm-hmm. of the bottles to, uh, to you know, do as best as we can. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, waste not, want not, but uh, it's. Uh, and, and for those listeners who are, who are hearing, there's a little three-year-old uh, who's uh, trying to be on the podcast as well. Uh, but uh, um, you know, th- but that's the challenge we have with um, with um, some of these vaccine strategies. Mm-hmm. That we're not really um, getting them out fast enough because we don't have have the supply. Definitely. And our government waited too long uh, at the beginning, trying to focus on the Can Sino deal with China mm-hmm. rather than pursuing 
um, good solid contracts with Pfizer, with Moderna, with with AstraZeneca to get mm-hmm. doses out quicker uh, for Canadians. No, fair. I think the states is a, is a pure example. Like we, for example, like Texas and Florida. I mean, they. I think I believe it was they opened roughly around the fall, if I'm not mistaken. Florida was around the fall. Texas was around the end of March, and and, and as well as South Dakota, for example, was open all the way all the way through. I think it's evident enough that that we've seen we've gone through. I mean. They have they have paid the price with with COVID deaths with the cost of, of staying open, but I mean everything's paid off now right there. They're getting the vaccines into their arms. They're they're actually their economies are booming again. Cruise lines are going back through again. I, we can't even get a single port out here. I mean they're, they're not even thinking about like the, for example like the states again. They're they're the Cando's worried about having people come in from the states. The states is now worried about coming people coming in from Canada. I mean like what does that tell you? They have like. Was it the six times the population that we do, and they're afraid of us? Well, well exactly, Aiden. And who who would have thought uh, we'd see the day where uh, where there's a travel advisory against Canada mm-hmm. of, of all places? But you know that's that's the unfortunate thing. You know, and especially you know we're we're looking south of the, the border and we see you know ballparks with uh, with near capacity <laughs> crowds. You know, I saw a tweet yesterday. Fenway Park is going to be opened mm-hmm. up to full capacity uh, before too long. It's amazing to see, and it, it tells you the the value of vaccinations, the value of getting the, the public vaccinated, and how they can uh, how they can move forward. Yes, the United States had some huge failures early in the pandemic, and, and that death toll is heartbreaking. But mm-hmm. if you look at where vaccines are, you look at the United Kingdom, who early in the pandemic decided they were going to invest in domestic capacity to manufacture um, vaccines. We should have been doing the same. On you know Early in the pandemic, when we saw um, the United Kingdom and others building up their capacity, we should have been doing the same. But sadly, we didn't. And here we are, you know, we're not even going to be able to have the capacity in Canada until 2022 uh, to manufacture capacity, manufacture vaccines. And even then, the amounts won't be sufficient to uh, to continue to vaccinate the entire mm. population. So Defin- we have, think- uh, as a country, failed on that side. Definitely. And then when, when MP Rempel or, or even John Barlow or even anyone on the health committee tries and gets answers for the vaccine, like they're getting more information they're from the heads of the, the vaccine organizations than they are the health minister, than the health minister and the secretary. Well, exactly. And, you know, I was on the industry committee for some time and, uh, you know, we had, you know, the head of public works, the deputy minister uh, there, we had the, the minister of public works, uh, Anita Anand, and we were asking questions about uh, about the vaccine contracts and they refused to share them with us. Um, you know, so we don't know what's in those those contracts. We don't mm-hmm. know what uh, what the fine print is. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries have released those contracts. We haven't, and that's uh, that's concerning. You know, Definitely. we want to know what we got. We want to know if we got value for our money, um, because at the end of the day, these are people's lives in our hands. And so, the more information we can have out there for Canadians, the better. Definitely. And I, even going through the the last six years, there there no information is being put up by Justin Trudeau. I mean, during his time, during his majority time, he. Well, we couldn't really do anything. They have the the upper hand, sadly, with that one. I mean, going into now, it, it's the sad reality of a minority, right? Because you need one of the other two opposition parties that will team up. And that's what we're seeing with, with C10 as well, that they're going to get backed by the by the block, which means C10 will become a reality, which is very disappointing for a lot of, of, of people. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, C10 is a huge concern, mm-hmm. um, especially since not only do they, uh, they uh, you know, you know, it not only is it a threat uh, to, to freedom of speech, but they actively removed 
the amend actively removed the clause that protected mm -hmm. um, user generated content. They removed that yeah. in, in in committee. So you know you have to ask yourself if uh, you know if if it was important enough to have that in there in the first place, why would you remove it? Mm -hmm. Other than to uh, to to move to place where the government, the CRTC, will begin to regulate user-generated mm -hmm. content, social media uh, posting. You know, they, the Liberals keep trying to spin this as, oh, you know, the Conservatives are in bed with the uh, with the web giants, mm -hmm. we're in, in bed with the major, um, you know, tech companies, which is completely not the case. Um, we, we also believe that they should be paying their fair share. Mm -hmm. you know, we're Conservatives. We believe everyone should, mm -hmm. uh, should, uh, should follow the rules. So, of mm -hmm. course, you know, the Facebooks of the world should be... Uh, uh, paying their fair share, but what we don't believe is that the government should be dictating what should or should not uh, be expressed through a user's post, whether mm -hmm. that's on Facebook or, or YouTube or or uh, you know a video you upload. Uh, you know that's that's your expression, that's your ability to say and to express what you believe, and that shouldn't be regulated uh, by the government. The government already has. Uh, measures in place to regulate hate speech, um, to uh, to deal with copyright infringements, and that's where you deal with those things. You don't do it by regulating free speech. Definitely, and uh, and definitely another another point as well. What Justin Justin Trudeau referred to us as was was rednecks in tinfoil hats as as well, and almost as conspiracy theorists. But it just it's evidence enough. Like like we have MP Harder press uh, Stephen Gilbert for answers, and he, and he tries it and grills her for being pro life. Yeah, you know, and, and and that's the thing. You know, they throw up these red herrings to try to divert uh, attention. And you know, I, I have to wonder, having listened to a number of uh, uh, the committee hearings where uh, Mr. Gibo has been has been testifying, some of his media interviews, I, I sometimes wondering if uh, he fully understands his own bill. Uh, you know, he, he gave an interview a couple weekends ago where his own staff had to come out and correct him afterwards um, for for information that he that he, he gave in the uh, the interview. So it's it's really concerning where he's going with uh, with this bill you know frankly uh, i would say 100 conservatives will be voting against it we mm -hmm. think this bill should be pulled uh if it's not pulled if we're elected the next government we're gonna be repealing it mm -hmm. because frankly it's not in the best interest of free speech for canadians and that's something we as canadians fundamentally believe in and we have to uh, have to protect that in any and all ways that we can definitely i, I agree with you there i think it should definitely be one of the, the priorities going if, if we're going to majority minority government whatever we just repeal it but i also as well i wonder if C-10 does pass, if the images of Stephen Gilbo in an orange jumpsuit getting put in the back of a, a cop car is going to be pulled off the internet. <laughs> well, they were exactly, exactly right. And, you know, that's the thing. You know, when you have a background, it's pretty easy to find those uh, find those images once they're, once they're online. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mr. Gilbo certainly can't uh, can't hide from his, uh, yeah. his past on that one. I mean, what was kind of like your initial reaction just, just going over the bill? Well, you know, it, it, it was concerning. It was concerning from the first po from the first point. But then once you saw the uh, the liberals on the committee take out the clause protected user generated uh, content, you know, I was shocked. I was completely shocked um, because why? You know, that mm -hmm. it was the question of why. Why would you want to uh, you know take out that uh, that protection? You know, we're we're talking about Canadians' fundamental rights to express themselves. And mm -hmm. so you know, seeing this happen, seeing the Liberals go this direction, uh, it was it was uh, shocking, mind boggling. You you named the adjective mm -hmm. because it was uh, it was uh, it was it was there. It was the feelings that we we felt. So um, you know, we're we're working working hard in committee right now. The Conservative members on that committee are working hard um, to to 
amend the bill or defeat mm-hmm. the bill or at least uh, prevent it from uh, from infringing on freedom of speech mm-hmm. but uh, we need support on that because like like you mentioned the block are going to support it and so the, with the, with the block support the uh, the liberals have the enough enough votes to pass it both in committee and in the house of commons so mm-hmm. uh, long long term if it does get passed we're going to have to work hard as conservatives you know as as an opposition hopefully someday as a government uh, to to go back and repeal this and protect the rights of Canadians and, and that's the thing too right because you're going to like another example is the is the we charity example and and you and they have the their NDPs on the backs like the the NDP they're going to the committee and they try and get answers they we have Charlie Angus for example oh we're we're going to hold them accountable and then it just goes and votes the other way i mean that's the oh, yeah. sad truth i mean the bloc quebecois i mean maybe two maybe four vote the other way i that's just being that's just being that's just being good to them yeah yeah well you know and then that's the thing you know you sometimes you have to put your uh you know your money where your mouth is you know and actually you know stand up and uh and you know speak for your constituents and uh and uh, you know time and time again we've seen uh you know, the ndp you know you know basically so that you know, to avoid an election, to mm-hmm. just vote with the Liberals, uh, regardless of, of not getting anything. You know, we, we sometimes joke, you know, that they're offered some magic beans and they take them yeah. to vote for the government. Um, but, you know, they've, they've got a, you know, no one wants an election. No, I don't, I don't deny that. No one wants an election right now mm-hmm. um, dur- during, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. But at the same time, you have to stand up for your constituents. You have to stand up for Canadians. And, mm-hmm. and if bills come before Parliament that are bad, well, it's a, our duty to oppose bad bills and if the liberals want to avoid an election they will take the you know take the concerns of the opposition and amend bills so they can pass their legislation and not throw canadians into an election yeah, I think definitely as well what you what you mentioned going back previous so it was is definitely the restrictions now because now in Ontario we're the stay at home works is extended till about June second I believe now I'll probably get extended another week or so after that and then Manitoba they're still in restrictions Alberta's going into more restrictions Quebec still has a curfew who would have thought of, of all things as well I think New Brunswick is just about locked down in there as well all these conservative. NDP and liberal provincial governments are all we're all just locked down right now. Like Canada, it's it's so locked down that that there's no end in sight. I mean, I mean, being truthful here, there's I'd say maybe we'll start to reopen midsummer. We'll probably have a fifty percent. 75 percent well 25 percent even uh, reopening as well during the summer i mean that like that's just being fair to them as well because it's as you're saying before if we had more restrictions at at first like we wouldn't even be here right now i mean now we have variants with maybe if the borders were closed sooner instead of we got called racist and xenophobic for that but i mean i mean like like where does your head lie head lie with all this stuff yeah, well, yeah, you know, you, you, there's a lot there to unpack, Aiden, but, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're right, you know, like, we're looking forward to the summer, but we're not going to see it as, as, a, as a fully open summer mm-hmm. like, we, like we'd want, and the variants are, are concerning. The variants are, are very much uh, concerning. We, we've seen how they, uh, they're, they're more transmissible, they're more virulent, they, you know, they're, they're, they're more dangerous for younger Canadians. Now, that's, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. That's a concern. And, you know, the government likes to say that, oh, it's only a small percentage of Canadians um, who, who got COVID because of travel. And that, and that is true. But all the variants came in 
via travel in the first place. Mm -hmm. So because we didn't have stringent measures at the border, because we weren't able to uh, to prevent them coming in in the first place, now we're dealing with a massive amount of variants in Canada, um, which are which are problematic. And this mm -hmm. third wave is, uh, is is in a lot of ways being caused by some of these variants. Um, so that's you know that's that's where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, looking forward to the summer. You know, it's you know. Today, you know, the sun's shining today, it's nice weather outside, yeah. but we're seeing ourselves still locked down in so many different provinces because we're not at the point where, where we're fully vaccinated and able to enjoy uh, enjoy what the summer should be all about um, because of that uh, because of those shortages. Definitely, I think, I, and I think as the other concern as well as the debt and, and deficit going up in this country. I mean, I think was every median household owes around seventy-seven thousand, and per Canadian is like thirty-three thousand, and, and the balance will just, and the the budget will just balance itself to just what Justin Trudeau likes to say. Well, yeah, exactly. And you know, you know, no one's denying that money had to be spent. You know, to deal with the pandemic. But you know what? Going into the pandemic, when times were good, the government, the Liberal government, was still spending deficit mm -hmm. dollars. And now we've seen the debt surpassed one trillion dollars. Uh, we have this massive debt that we're going to leave to our grandchildren and great grandchildren. Mm -hmm. and, and there's no plan. There's no plan going forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the government likes to talk about its fiscal anchors, but there are no fiscal anchors. They've cut those loose and uh, and let them go. Um, so we don't have any any real understanding of where the government plans to go with debt and deficit. Um, when you look at the cost of borrowing, uh, when one of the biggest line items is uh, debt servicing charges, that's a lot of money that could be going to Canadians, could mm -hmm. be going to support things like health care, like, uh, like infrastructure sp spending, you know, like social programs. If we're spending that on debt financing alone, we're not. We're really not investing in the, the needs of Canadians. Definitely, and I think as as as, as well is we're, we're just looking at like as, like pre-COVID. Like yeah, you definitely have to spend through COVID. I think the four governments spent more this year, the past year, than they have for the, their first two years. Is you're you're really looking at it and you go, hmm, what what are we using that for? Like we're buying like green new reusable electric chargers for canadian tire we're buying brand new fridges for loblaws i mean like like what what is that supposed to do well exactly and the thing is if you're a liberal friend you get to reward in these mm -hmm. things we saw that <laughs> whether it's you know you know millions of dollars for fridges and freezers at loblaws or whether it was the the wee you know the wheat charity scandal you know you you name it if, if you're if you're close with the prime minister if you're close with the liberal government um mm -hmm. they're going to invest in you um yeah. rather than the needs of canadians and that's and that's a real unfortunate thing going forward you know the, the government likes to brag that you know 80 percent of all dollars spent have been federal dollars for covid relief well no 100 percent of all funds spent have been taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. it's the taxpayer who's footing the bill for everything, no matter which level of government uh, is doing this spending, at the end of the day, that money comes from your pocket, comes mm -hmm. from your family's pockets, it comes from your community's pockets, um, and that's what people, you know, especially liberals, need to understand. It's not your money, it's not government's money, it's taxpayers' mm -hmm. money. It definitely is a point. Going back, uh, you're looking at all these people that are deep in the the PMOs office. I mean, like we have Melanie Jolie's boyfriend who got a contract for ventilators, Katie Telford's boyfriend got a contract for ventilators as well the we charity i mean with the snc justin trudeau had their backs he tried to make sure that they didn't get prosecuted to the full extent of the law just try to wrap your head around it and you just can't wrap because you could go on and on all day about justin trudeau's failures but when it really comes down to it in a way you, you have to kind of choose like pick and choose what you what you want to go with right Oh, 
yeah, and that's the thing. There's a lot to go on there. You know, you, you, there's no shortage of liberal scandals you can uh, you can focus on uh, going forward. And I think that's the thing. Going forward, you know, when we look at the next election, whenever that may be, it's really two things. Yes, we have to show the failures of the liberal government, uh, and there's there's no shortage uh, there. But then we have to show Canadians how we would do better. Mm-hmm. So I think we, as a Conservative Party, will will be highlighting the fact that we are there for Canadians. We are there to get Canadians back to work get their paychecks back into their pockets to allow them to, to feed their families, to, to serve in their communities, and do all they can to make this country great. I think that's where we really need to be focusing mm-hmm. on right now. Definitely. We'll show Justin Trudeau the, the failures that he's uh, caused in this country, and we'll be the ones to fix it. Definitely. And one, one of my last questions for you is, kind of going back over your, your last couple of years as MP, what's kind of been your, your favorite part of it? Well, there's been a lot I could say that's been uh, been been a lot of fun, a lot of favorites. Um, you know, also we'll say start with what hasn't been a lot of fun, <laughs> and that's been this last uh, 12 to 15 months, um, being outside of Parliament, not being able to be in the House of Commons uh, to debate, uh, to engage, doing so much of our debates via Zoom. Uh, it's made the House of Commons far more toxic, far more partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not not what Parliament ought to be. I would say from a personal standpoint, what I've most enjoyed was being able to present my private member's bill uh, earlier this year, um, have my first hour debate on that. It's, it's a bill to better protect young people and persons li- with, living with disabilities. So being able to do that and finally bring that to, to, to a vote uh, eventually in the House of Commons, it's been a bill I've been working on for over three years now. And so finally being able to do that, it's been one of the greatest experiences of the past few years mm-hmm. in Parliament. So that's something I've enjoyed uh, despite the, uh, the craziness and unfortunate nature of COVID-19. Definitely. Uh, my last question for you is, going into the future, is there something you're looking forward to? Is it the COVID recovery? Is it another private member's bill? Kind of, what's kind of like your oh, favorite? Yeah, no, no questions. A little bit I'm of everything. To is, is the COVID recovery. Mm. We, we need the COVID recovery. And I think I'm looking forward to it. Uh, my family certainly is. I think the entire mm. country is looking forward uh, to the COVID recovery. When we can go out, spend time with our loved ones, go out to events, go out to sporting events, um, go back to normal. Um, and, and, you know, people people want that. Everyone mm. wants that. So I think what I'm looking forward to, and hopefully it's happening um, by the end of this year, hopefully, you know, even earlier, you know, that we can enjoy some of the summer, that we can enjoy the fall. Kids can be back in school. We want the recovery. We want to be back to uh, back to normal and uh, be done and see, uh, see COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. For sure. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. It was great to have you on here, and I hope that we could we could do this again. My pleasure. Thank you, Aiden. Anytime. Perfect. Have a great day. Thanks. You, you too. Thank you. Bye. And that was John Nader, the MP for Perth Wellington. Make sure to tune in on the next episode of Conservative Roundup. Thank you.